You're listening to a Business and Society podcast special with co-host Bruce Piasecki. Today's guests are James and Deborah Fallows. James has been a national correspondent for The Atlantic for more than 35 years, reporting from China, Japan, Southeast Asia, Europe, and across the United States. Winner of the National Book Award and National Magazine Award, he's the author of 12 books and his work has appeared in numerous publications and on public radio. For two years, he was President Jimmy Carter's chief speechwriter. Deborah is a linguist and writer. The author of Dreaming in Chinese and A Mother's Work, she has written for The Atlantic, National Geographic, and The New York Times, among others, and has worked at the Pew Research Center, Oxygen Media, and Georgetown University. Following the success of their New York Times best-selling book, Our Towns, an HBO documentary based on their reporting on around 50 towns around the country, they formed the Our Towns Foundation to promote reporting from underserved areas across the U.S., to connect innovators and give Americans a fuller and more realistic picture of their country's challenges and opportunities. James and Deb Fallows, welcome to Business and Society and the Creative Process. Thank you so much. I want to start by honoring both Deb and James by reading a passage from a book called More Like Us. And it's a book comparing American culture to Japanese culture. It reveals a lot, I think, in this passage about their origins after leaving home, after leaving their great education at Harvard and starting a life. So James writes in a chapter called The Golden Dream, in moving to California then, my parents revealed a little about the West Coast and something more about themselves. They illustrated the American characteristic that has applied to all regions of the country and throughout our history. That is, the belief that people can learn to do things they haven't done before, can take on identities they hadn't had, can with themselves move into stations in life different from those in which they were born. I know that my parents' life was transformed when they put themselves in a different setting and learned that they had new choices. Even my mother now concedes that she is glad they went west. I lived, in, I lived for only 11 years in California but that was a decisive experience in my family's life. So what did that experience of you watching your parents mean to you, James, and then Deb, too? So thank you so much, Bruce, for having us on the show and for noticing that passage from so long ago. I'm thinking when I wrote that back in the late 1980s, I referred to my mother in the present tense. And she, of course, and my father are both in the past tense now. But the, the brief background of that is that both of them had been raised in small town, non-glamorous suburbs of Philadelphia. They were from modest families. And, and my dad ended up being trained by the Navy as a doctor during World War II. He got out of high school just near the, before the end of World War II. They sent him for two years to college, then straight to medical school. And he was a Navy doctor when I was born and when I was a little child. I lived in briefly in Mississippi and in Maryland and other places. And when he got out of the Navy, the idea was, where would they actually live? This was when I was about four years old, and I had two little siblings at that point. And my mother, I think, always had the sense they should go back to Philadelphia, back to the familiar shady trees, back to the relatives. And my dad, 
thought there was some new opportunity in California, and he'd been based briefly in San Diego and liked the idea of the weather being different in, in California as well. So they went to a small town called Redlands, California, inland of Los Angeles, which is where I, I grew up and where I still think I'm from. And I think that every single day, my dad had the sense of a positive part of American reinvention, that he could become a cowboy there, as he did, in addition to a small-town doctor. He could become a sculptor. He could become a leading citizen of the town. My mom also loved raising our family. I think she always sort of missed the uh, shady trees of, of the East Coast and missed her relatives. But it was, in a way, in, in one family, the promise and also some of the disruption of this American idea of constant repotting and reinvention and, and, and rethinking. Is that correct, Deb? That's how I remember <laughs> your parents, for sure. Yes. And Deb, did you feel during your career as a dean and master of linguistics and a person who wrote a beautiful interview on why I write, where you describe yourself as writing about being an author is an odd experience for me because I don't think of myself as a writer. I don't approach my life, either everyday life or overall life, with the question, how will I write about this? I usually start writing something for the same reason. When I have some experience or issue that I'm trying to work out in my mind, then sometimes it becomes something to share with others. What has writing give, given to you? What has the study of language given to you? And how does it relate to your interests in life? I never really consider writing as part of who I am, certainly more so now than earlier, but it was really the family cottage industry. And, and I would say that I got into it accidentally, partly out of convenience, partly out of proximity to Jim. The convenience was that I was spending most of my time raising our then little children and being able to write around the edges was something that was very flexible to do. And we had the good fortune of living in places that were around the world with these little kids, where there was so much to see and so much to write about and so much to try to make sense of that was different from our life in Washington, DC, that talking out loud about it was kind of a natural outlet. It turned into writing because that's what you did with your observations. And certainly, I wouldn't have had the courage to start writing if I weren't married to Jim, because I knew that I could always ask him to look at something or to save me from myself of whatever embarrassment I might have. I was not trained as a writer. I didn't go to journalism school. I wasn't on the school paper. You did but get a PhD in linguistics. We I should did. note that as part of your repertoire here. That, that is true. I want to mention, <laughs> my wife of 45 years said Deb's piece about being a part-time person. This classic essay was such an important piece for her because it led to her understanding of the work-life balance. Yes, this was called Mothers and Other Strangers. Yes. There was a little banner on the Washington Monthly cover which said the myth of the superwoman. So this is taking us way back to about 1982. Mm -hmm. At that time, the culture was very <laughs> divided in a different way about women's roles in society. You can have children, you can have a great career. If you can't manage this at the same time, there's just something wrong with you. You are failing somehow. And the 
opposite side was coming out of Phyllis Schlafly's just stay home. You know, this is the most important thing you do, how you shouldn't think about doing anything else. And neither of those spoke to me. We had two very little children at the time. And I had earned a doctorate in theoretical linguistics. And I was starting to work in that field. I just felt there's something wrong in these messages here. It's not me. It's not that I can't do it all myself. It's that the society is telling me something that is just off. So in trying to work through the real disorientation and disconnect of how I was doing it in society, I wrote this piece about this is the state of affairs of women. Can you just do it all? And having decided at that point myself, I couldn't do it all, but it wasn't because I was failing. It was because it was just physically impossible to be in both places, raising children, which was a tremendously fundamental, minute by minute, important mission for me, which I enjoyed surprisingly very much in contest with the kind of commitment and dedication that you were required to have in a full-time job. So I decided to quit my full-time job, stay home with the kids, work out my mental complications <laughs> in writing this article. And it took a lot of flack on one side and a lot of compliments on the other side. I know the women who understand <laughs> on the compliment because they all felt the same existential lived experience quest of being intelligent, wanting to write what I think in your work is an honest realignment of the work-life balance, Deb. And I think you also see that in your book, Dreaming in Chinese, where you know you read the reviewers and they're talking about it as an honest realignment of what we should think about Chinese cultures. Deb then wrote a book from this in the next two or three years called A Mother's Work, which was great. This was sort of in the time when the boys were napping and all that, it was just before we moved to Japan. And that got a heightened version of the pro and con response. I yes, would say. it did. It, and I would say it blindsided me. I was young. I hadn't really written it very much before. And I was taken aback by the severe criticisms. <laughs> And I, those outweighed the, the very nice compliments that I got too. I wish I could do it again now because I would be tougher and be able to answer those critiques with a thicker skin. <laughs> I think a beautiful job that describing the honesty with which you go into writing, that it's to get your head clear about where you stand. Hmm. And because you're writing about things of business and culture and social significance, you're experiencing what many others are experiencing it becomes a value. So I, I see the same in this family cottage industry that you and, and Jim <laughs> approach to thinking about big issues. To get back to this issue of dreaming in Chinese, Mandarin lessons in life, love, and language. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience of writing that book and being with Jim in China, a great mystery to many people right now? It will always be a great mystery, 5,000 years of, of history and always a mystery. So we went to China in, when was this? Not, first time in the, in the 80s. With our children when they were very young. And it was just really post-Mao era 
China was just coming out of the Cultural Revolution, and it, it felt like that. It was not the big skyscrapers and not the power industry that we think of today. It was pretty rough around the edges. We went back to China quite a bit later in 2006 to live for several years. Kids were all grown up. We were by ourselves. And that was another experience of being 100% blindsided. Jim was going to write about China. My job was to study Chinese. Somebody in the family had to do it. I was the so-called linguist in the family. So we moved to China, just the two of us landed ourselves, had to kind of make our own way. And I must say that, you know, by that point in our lives, we, we had traveled around the world a lot and lived in a lot of different places, but the culture of China gave us nothing to grab onto. Any of our Western sensibilities of how the world worked or what the values were like just didn't apply in the small ways, like crossing the street in daily life, which was always an extremely dangerous undertaking, <laughs> or in the big ways of trying to interpret how people were behaving with each other. For example, it seemed to me whenever I was walking down the street behind two, two women friends, Chinese women friends, they, they always seemed to be, while locked in arms, screaming at each other, yelling at each other. And I couldn't understand why they seemed so angry at each other. It was only later, through the course of living there, that I learned that that kind of absence of any kind of filters with people, which comes across often as being very abrupt and very confrontational, is actually an expression of that you feel so comfortable and close to that person, you don't have to behave nicely, as what we would say is nicely. It is a compliment to bear your feelings and bear your soul in a way that Westerners could hear as angry, but Chinese would take as closeness. The language became for me a way of, of interpreting and understanding what I was seeing. I learned quite a bit of Chinese, studying it constantly, it was really hard, but listening as I had been trained to do as a linguist to the expressions, to all of the kind of contextual presentation and watching very closely how people looked when they were speaking as well, helped me. It was my way in. It was my toolkit for trying to interpret what was going on in life. So language is, is how I look at the world. It through my ears, actually. And it became my way of trying to understand really, really as well as I could what the culture was like. The friends of ours who were there in China, the same time we were, the Western friends, I found that those who became most engaged in Chinese culture and Chinese daily life were ones who had a passion of some sort that they used to interpret life in China. Some were artists, some were historians. Some were really serious tourists, but f using having some kind of tool as a way in to interpret the completely puzzling and overwhelming difference of society became a way to not only survive there, but, you know, get into the culture in a different way. I had the privilege of when my mother retired from work, taking her to mainland China and to Japan. And my father had been a military man 
during the Pacific conflict in Japan. And so we had always heard family stories about spending time in Asia. And my mother was a superhero in China. This is the sportive part of the memory because she was very small. I'm a big guy, right? She carried half of her luggage with cigarettes and she's just a warm, <laughs> beautiful person. They, they just loved her. They just loved instantly bonding with her. But I, in reading your book, I was amazed at the insight that we didn't have, but I, I do see it now in retrospect, about they're not preoccupied with American concerns about freedom or self-identity. Instead, you say they are a people who can be very warm. This is very true. I, I felt an, an, an odd and probably unwarranted <laughs> close relationship with many of the Chinese women I met. There was a very easy kind of familial solidarity with the women I met right away. And, you know, also this relates to language. And here's an expression of it. I guarantee that in the first conversation you, you may have with a Chinese person, you will hear questions like, how much do you weigh? What color is your hair really? What's your rent? What's your salary? And which of your children do you like best? <laughs> you just get kind of right to the heart of things that is very shocking, but breaks down all barriers for sure, if you're not offended. And the first time you might be offended, but when you hear those every time, you're, you're ready for it. And it becomes a, a way into a, a friendship or relationship with people that is kind of immediate. No beating around the bush, you know, no protocols like we found in Japan, no, no rules for anything. Just go right in there and let's talk. You ended up thinking that if you were reincarnated, you would come back as a Chinese woman. I'm afraid that is true, or <laughs> I'm proud to say that is true. <laughs> and, you know, speaking of language, Deb, I had the privilege as an undergraduate at Cornell to meet Hans Gadamer when he was traveling the world on his book, Truth and Method. And one of the things that I learned from him is he felt that of all living creatures, humans are the most free because of language. Essentially, I think what connects Jim's book on Japan and your book on China and the opening passage that I read is that it's with language we can be free to move to that new place, what James called repotted, and pay attention to growing in that new culture and kind of making sense of it. So I guess what I would say, turning it now to Jim a little bit. So in a sense, I would love to get your plan back in 33 years ago when you wrote that 10-page passage about Joan Didion talking about Southern California <laughs> and your civil appropriation of coming to a mature understanding of where Southern California gave your father things and gave you things. And then you got to go to Harvard and meet, meet Deb. The thing that seems constant in, this, in your work is how language helps you capture meaning that it's in the act of phrasing something that you capture the meaning, put it in a book or in a chapter and share it with the world. At what age, Jim, did you know you could do that? Because it's an, I mean, you write speeches for President Carter as the youngest speechwriter ever. Then you win a National Book Award for your work on national defense. Then you go and write More Like Us 
And then you write six or seven other major books, right? So where did this ability to capture meaning become your life preoccupation? So thank you for that, that good question, which is good because it phrases things in a way that I hadn't thought about in exactly that form <laughs> and therefore forces me to, to, to think about things new. And I'll answer indirectly. I never intended to be a writer when I was a kid. I thought I was going to be a doctor like my dad. He was this beloved small town doctor. And among the activities I did in high school was not the school newspaper or anything like that. I was very active in forensics on the debate team and the oratory team and things like that. And I suppose that there was one connection among those speech team things and something else I'll mention and getting involved into speech writing and then into the, the, the written world which was that as Deb will roll her eye, if you if listeners could see Deb rolling her eyes right now, they would imagine her rolling her beautiful blue Eastern European eyes, because I'm going to talk about my the upbringing I had in the, the Episcopal Church of our small town, where they used the old style prayer book. This was the 1549 Thomas Cranmer prayer book written in the language of the King James Bible. And all the cadences of that were grooved into my brain from exposure one zillion times as the way that language should sound. And I, I think it has a natural connection to, to spoken languages. I think I like, it's why I like doing debate and, and oratory in high school. And then I will come back to this. Then when I was in college, by chance, I got sort of drawn to the, the college newspaper, the Crimson ended up spending more and more of my time there, ended up being the editor of the paper during a very tumultuous and consequential time with the Vietnam War raging and protests and everything else. And then, you know, thought that maybe it's worth trying the, the writing world as a line of, of work. The connection I'm making is that there was something about the sound of spoken language that stayed in my mind as something both for actual speaking as with writing speeches, but also for writing, for writing on the page, that even though there are different kinds of writing for the eye and for the ear, you want in a way to the reader to be able to sort of hear the words to himself or herself as, as they go along the, the page. So I think that that's um, my version of what you're talking about with Deb and the use of words to convey what we see is I really like reporting, going out and finding things out. That is the fun of this line of work. The work of this line of work is the actual writing, but I think the model I have in mind is hearing things through all of my childhood and in speech contests and all the rest of the way people would say something as opposed to just the way they would write it down. And it seems like speech action is what makes your work, Ebbs and yours, so approachable because people can relate to it. It's not, in a sense, abstract or academic. It's very heartfelt work. And I would like to go on record saying that your work through the years, 40 years of both of you, is very civil work. It's very community oriented. It's very warm because it's not angry. It's not vicious. It's not mean. And it's almost as if there's a whole tradition in the media now and in America in particular, which is the opposite, where you don't get, you don't think you're heard by being civil or warm. So I, I will say something about that, then Deb will correct me <laughs> and add what I would really, what I meant, meant to say. I had the good fortune, I, I've had the really 
tremendous fortune of several brilliant editors I've had contact with early in my life. The first job I had right out of graduate school in the magazine world was the, a man named Charlie Peters at the Washington Monthly Magazine. Charlie is still around at age uh, 96. We're still in, in touch with him. He just was starting the magazine then and working first for him and then for the nascent Texas Monthly when it was starting, uh, when we moved in Texas, to Texas for graduate school with Bill Broyles and Greg Curtis and Griffin Smith and others there. And then for 20 plus years with Bill Whitworth at The Atlantic, who was a, a fabulous editor, and along with him, Mike Janeway and Dick Todd and Bob Manning and, and Cullen Murphy, all of them in their different ways implanted the idea that you were looking, the goal of a magazine article or a book was something not for the sensation of this second, that you wanted something that people could look at again a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, and still something in your voice would be recognizable. And so often the things that are, when you're most in the kind of passion of the moment is when you're most likely to say something extreme, I hate this guy, this person is a criminal, et cetera, as opposed to making the case that in ways you hope people who might not have started out agreeing with you might come to see the premises you're offering, the evidence you're offering. I'll say one other thing here, my, my basic, in a way, the structure of everything I've ever written as a magazine article or book, it has this simple three-part structure. I wondered about something. I went out to find out about it. Here's what I found. And you're essentially showing your homework to the reader along the way. And here's what I ended up thinking. You might think other things, but I think it because of X, Y, and Z. So, uh, Deb, what am I leaving out? Well, I just wanted to add on, on one thing about about the earlier part of the conversation talking about how you write. I've watched over more than 50 years now, Jim as a writer, and he continues to practice this craft. The only comparable thing I can conjure up is a yogi who every single day focuses so intently on what he or she is doing to make it perfect. And every day it's a new challenge. I, I think Jim has never <laughs> gotten into the rhythm of writing something on the first draft and thinking that was good and stopping there. It's constant. It's only on the 17th draft that he thinks, okay, I think I'm, I'm getting there now. I just have to work out the last paragraph. Can I add my line from John Kenneth Galbraith? Yeah. So John Kenneth Galbraith had a famous line in one of his books talking about the air of spontaneity that comes on the 13th draft. And I think that is the, the goal we're looking for here. I love what you said so far about you're writing nonfiction in a way that it's not about the sensation of the moment, but it's a part of social history. So the series that me and I are doing on business and society is meant to find people who actually write something that matters to business and society over time not just a splash, right? And I think that what you just summed up about, you wonder about something, you go out in the field and you say, this is what I found, but that Deb adds that it takes 13 drafts, shows that you're listening to some sort of higher tradition of music in your head. You know what good writing is, Deb and Jim, and you're not gonna be satisfied until it sounds right with all the standards of what sounds right. Yes, and, and I think of it as, you keep working away until it's 
less bad than it started. <laughs> and, and then the deadline comes. Sensibly recognize that you're in dialogue with great editors, right? But you're <laughs> yes. also, after a while, you're creating things like your book, Our Towns. I don't think, I don't know the truth of the matter is, but I'm not sure if anyone asked you to do this. You're creating things that you yourselves decide to do. Yeah, on our towns, exactly. Going back to that, it's something for, for all time. What is America? What is it? What is this greater vision of America that's outside the, 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 the capital cities that we see, the, the negative images, the divisive world? So it's a kind of timeless America, but it embraces all the flaws. So just go into that experience, this adventure on your on your airplane. This this it's a wonderful love story, like a honeymoon. <laughs> Our actual honeymoon, honeymoon was in a work camp in Ghana, but that's a whole different <laughs> story, which we'll, we'll tell another another time. But but it is. Look, thank you very much for responding in that way, and it was a great adventure. And I'll just set it up. In this sense, in both the timeliness and what we hope would be the timelessness, the timeliness was we'd been living in China for, we'd come back after about five years in China at that point. And in China, what we loved was a sense of surprise. You'd go to some little village and something you never imagined you'd see, and it was part of the Chinese contradiction and, and, and the glory and the hardship of China. So we thought we would try to do that in the U.S. too, and with this little propeller plane going to places that weren't usually covered. And I think it was the accumulation of the first couple of months, a month or two of that travel in South Dakota and then in rural Vermont and in rural Michigan, we thought we're seeing things that we never read about that we've just by by following the newspapers we know all about new york and dc but we don't know anything about sioux falls we don't know anything about holland michigan and it's so interesting and i i think the the, the what i'm building to on the time leanness is it was was and is i think a moment in american history where people have a sort of caricatured view of the america that's not directly in their experience they think okay where I am is all right, but those people out there are crazy. Those people out there are extreme. Those people out there, we don't understand them. And so it was sort of showing that those people out there had a lot, much more in common than, than people recognized. On the timelessness, we recognize there's a centuries-long tradition of people trying to explain the U.S. by traveling its length from Lewis and Clark and Tocqueville and, and, and a million others. And there is a sort of built-in narrative to that of what you see and learn along the road. And so we felt in reading a lot of these old chronicles, a lot of it was recognizable 200 years later. And so we were hoping to lay down some evidence of what things were like you know, in these years. And beyond that, you have this foundation, and it's not—it's not just the documentary uh, made by Academy uh, Award-nominated <laughs> directors. The foundation. What are its activities? So we did the reporting. We wrote the book. We we made the film, and then we thought, well, what's next? We we could just keep going around the country writing about towns for the rest of our life, but but that that's that wouldn't be right. We really wanted to both continue the message of this book to let people know all of the all of the energy and creative imaginative projects and commitments that are going on town by town, but to hear from those people directly, to hear from other people, not just us and our voices, and to connect 
the people together who are in like-minded silos? Like how do the artists speak to each other about what's important in their communities? Or what are the teachers doing and what would they like to hear from other teachers around the country about, about their, how they're trying to engage their kids and make them good little citizens or teach them STEM classes or keep them in school if they're in trouble? What is it? So the idea behind this foundation is to keep going, but in a bigger way that really amplifies the voices of other people and let's helps them connect with each other to talk about what they do. So it's another version of the same thing that goes beyond just us to, to the rest of the people around the country. And, and if I can make a more boring analytical point here, what we were, I think, coming to really feel strongly during the years we were traveling is how the mainstream narrative of our country was sort of mismatched to the world many people lived in, not for reasons of media conspiracy or all the other things that you read about or you hear about from various parts of the political spectrum, but just because there are not sort of sensory organs out there for people to be able to have a picture of, of their country. And so we, we wanted to try to change or at least amplify America's sense of itself idea of what this country is like. And, and since we come from that same media world that we're, we're trying to correct, in a way we feel ha we have some leverage in that world that other people might not have, you know, whether it's academics or political critics or whatever. We're from this journalism world. And we're trying to give an example to this journalism world of what other parts of the story are there to tell. I would be interested in your take when the Washington Post review of your HBO a documentary about the book said, Our Towns is No Joke, as an exercise in sincerity, fellowship, and earnest inquiry. It might be the most subversive movie in circulation right now. What do you think that person is saying about subversive? <laughs> because I found that a special and unexpected word. So that was by uh, the Washington Post longtime movie critic, um, Anne Hornaday, whom we don't know, but we've followed her work for decades. And I thought that actually, from my self-interested point of view, I thought that was a wonderful line because I thought she exactly captured what we were trying to do and also was in juxtaposition to some other kind of offhand comments by the Post over the previous year or two, where they had said about some of the, the projects we'd done, oh, this must be a cherry-picked view of the U.S. or this is, okay. is uh, un unrealistic. And she was saying, actually presenting the complexities of American life and not just boiling it down to the National Republican Party and the National Democratic Party, that was the kind of positive subversion she was welcoming and we were grateful for. I feel the need to say something here, lest we come across as sounding too earnest, too sincere, too honest, too positive, too Pollyanna-ish. We saw a lot of very rough things when we were going around the country in a way that America is quite familiar with. We saw opioid crises. We saw very sick people. We heard the police talking about how they deal with kids who are in trouble or the judges in the youth drug court, parents who had lost their kids to opioids. We spent time on uh, Native American Indian reservations and heard their sides of the story of being shipped off to schools when they were young kids. So homelessness, of course, everywhere we went. 
we talk to teachers about how do you keep kids in school? How do you deal with kids in school when they go home after school and there are gunshots up and down the neighborhood and the police come knocking on the door in the evening and they're the ones who have to deal with it because they know their dad's in trouble. So we saw every unfortunate aspect of the country that we all know about. And as Jim said, we include that in what we write about and talk about. And it helps, I think, to talk about the counterpoint, which is the underreported stories of grappling with these issues and trying to speak to them in a way that is positive and creative. It seems to me that your works, all of them, are neither too rosy nor too dismal. It's an honest realignment of what you're seeing happening that's not the easy answer. That is, in fact, a purposeful exploration of what's happening to our culture and what's happening in our societies. I just have a quick question. In your book, More Like Us, the subtitle was Make America Great Again. So how responsible do you feel for that movement? I mean, this, <laughs> this subtitle, I mean, it's not, I don't want to go into this, but we didn't say the whole title. Yes. So I will give background here. We've been living in Japan. We spent about four years when our children were little. We were living a couple of years in Japan, a couple of years in Malaysia and Southeast Asia. And this was the era when Japan was taking off like a rocket. And of course, you know, there was the famous book, Japan as, as number one. And there are lots of other things of how to learn from the Japanese. And the argument I was making in More Like Us was that it was important to take Japan and the Japanese model very seriously, but the answer for America with its entirely different ethic and background and history and ambitions was not to be more like them, but more like us. And in conjunction with my then editor, Michael Janeway, who was at Houghton Mifflin, he said, well, let's come up with a subtitle. <laughs> so the subtitle was more like us than clarifying, making America great again. This was not the first time that phrase had appeared in the English language. Ronald Reagan used to use that sometimes in his speeches. And so it was a kind of 1% winking nod to Ronald Reagan. And the other 95%, this is the argument, finding ways to take advantage of the mobility and the inclusiveness and the refashioned patriotism that is America's almost unique advantage in the world. Then we leap ahead several decades. <laughs> and I, we have red MAGA hats and we have making America great again with its whole different connotations. This is one of the, not the burdens, this is one of the realities of my life being connected in a way I didn't foresee with a, a political movement 40 years later. <laughs> I'm thinking as you're speaking, Deb and Jim, about E.M. Forrester's wonderful line, which is, life is easy to chronicle, but bewildering to practice. In an honest book that's so balanced, like more like <laughs> us, there are people who are going to take a phrase and misuse it. So I thought that <laughs> was a bewildering misuse, or just like the discovery that you're 5% Neanderthal. Boy, does that get a lot of coverage. <laughs> Now, that, that I wear as a, a badge of pride. And the 30 second background here is when the Atlantic was having some stunt event in partnership with UC San Diego to do these uh, early genomics tests on our staffers, there were three of us. There was a guy, Alexis Madrigal, whose family was all from Mexico and a much more hirsute person than I am, and Steve Clemens, who is from Oklahoma, and me. And they came out with the results that I was 
by far the most Neanderthal of the group. And, <laughs> and they had no kind of evidence of my mom's mitochondria in the files at all. I think that's because her family was from the Scottish Highlands. And the Scottish Highlands is where the poor beleaguered Neanderthals ended up. <laughs> so I'm going with it. <laughs> I think it's fun just to talk about how society uses our stuff and uses our facts. As you were going around America, just tell us about some of those positive civic engagements, teachers, role models, all these things that we, we don't hear enough about. Yes. So we had a kind of pattern when we'd go to a, a new town where we would intend to stay for one week, two weeks, whatever, enough to try to get a sense of what was really going on. One of the usual suspects we went to at the very beginning, and one of the usual questions we asked was, what school should we go see in this town? What's an interesting school in this place? And there was always an answer. And sometimes like in Greenville, South Carolina, there were so many answers, we'd have had to stay a month to see every school. But we really saw, I would say overall, such creation, such creativity of teachers, administrators, principals, school superintendents, trying to figure out what kinds of schools would work best in these communities. For example, in Little Winters, California, which is an agricultural town in the top of the Central Valley where people were grew almonds and stone fruits. Most of the kids in that town had parents who were in agriculture in one way or another, a very tiny town. So the, the town embraced this and used this identity of itself to organize a curriculum that would make sense to the students around everything agriculture. They had a little garden out behind the school, so the kids were actually kind of mini farmers on how to do things. We saw that kind of skills training in whether it was automotive or factory work or agriculture or medicine in communities around the country and schools around the country that would use that as a core and embed it in the curriculum that the kids were required to learn. What's the math behind this? What's the literature behind this? How do you write about this or speak about this? So that kind of really place-oriented education was town by town really different, but did follow a kind of model to bring out the core of what would be relevant to children's lives. You have these governor's schools and they're public boarding schools that are open to kids from around the state. In Mississippi, they came from the deltas, they came from the double wides, they came from the fancy suburbs of Hattiesburg. And they would go to this boarding school in Columbus, Mississippi for a couple of years at a time, public school, and live there together. And it was called the Mississippi School for Mathematics and Science. On the other hand, some of the real shining stars were the social studies and English teachers in that school. They had a program. So Columbus, Mississippi was a civil war hospital town. It, it has a very fraught racial past, as you can imagine. It's a black town, it's a white town. It's a very mixed town now. The social studies teacher kind of took it upon himself that the kids needed to understand this history and the town needed to reckon with its past and how could we all do this together? So his solution, which seems kind of simple, but was brilliant, was 
to have the kids research people who were in the cemeteries buried after the Civil War, find out about their lives, create productions that they would do reenactments of that era of their history in the cemetery in the town, invite the townspeople. There was nothing whitewashed, so to speak, about any of what they were doing. And we watched these presentations grow from an audience of 12 people to over the years, an audience of hundreds of people from the town, black, white, everything, talking about what the kids were presenting and how it fit into the history of their town, using it as a vehicle to talk together with each other about the racial situation in their town today. It changed not only those kids' lives and what they learned to do, but it changed the entire community year from year to year. In this newest book, you were pursuing both the country's regional disappointments and its possibilities. And with an open mind, you went out in the field and you found that things are doing better than reported. So that the assumptions of people in California or New York are that the rural areas are dismal. You, you say, Jim, at one point, an important part of the face of modern America has slipped from people's view in a way that makes a big and destructive difference in the country's public and economic life. Despite the economic crisis of the preceding decade and the social tensions of which every American is aware, most parts of the United States that we visited have been doing better in most ways than most Americans realize. If you can explain that <laughs> fundamental, why your trip is in that tradition of de Tocqueville, but it's an important reminder of how Americans know how to keep care of themselves. How to... One of those sentences you read, I would emphasize the, my repetition of the word most. Most right. parts of the country are doing better in most ways than most other Americans realize. That of course, there are no absolutes in all this. There are some places we've been that are really not being able to recover from the blows they've received. Over the centuries, as you know, and, and as we've often discussed, some really tiny communities have found it hard or impossible to hang on. And communities that have only you know, 100 or 200 people, it is really hard for many of them to find ways in, in, in the longer run. But the surprise to us, again, my emphasis on most, is that compared with what most people would think, in most places, things are actually doing better. And there is a kind of resilience and inventiveness that people come up with. To circle back on this, one of the themes that struck us is how much of the country is aware of something we were discussing earlier on, the beginning of this conversation about Joan Didion's famous article, sort of looking at my homeland of San Bernardino, California, as this sort of hellscape <laughs> of people who didn't have much culture, et cetera. A whole lot of the country has that consciousness of being looked down on in some way. The South in general, the Rust Belt in general, the Plain States in general, people that with the exceptions of some of the richest parts of the biggest cities, many people feel that they have some kind of chip on their shoulder. And the question is, is that used in a constructive or destructive way? And we were impressed by how many places there was a constructive sense of, you don't think we can do this here in Fresno, California. We're going to show you. We're going to show you what is possible in Mississippi. We're going to show you what's possible to rebuild old factories in Allentown or in Dayton, or in Duluth. 
And so I, I think the idea that in the national political discourse, there's often the sense that much of the country is the object of things happening elsewhere. And of course, that's true. There are world trends and climate trends and economic trends that affect all of us. But people don't like to think of themselves as objects. They like to think of themselves as everybody is the center of his or her own drama and ways in which that sense of we are inventing our future for ourselves, for our families, for our schools, our communities, and our nations, seeing how much of that is still there, how much there is there to the inside of America. That was the theme we were trying to convey. I think that's the real beauty of the book is that you help remind Americans that we are in fact self-reliant and that given the chance, we're gonna do something for our family and our firms and our community. That we aren't, to be frank, only selfish and self-aggrandizing. So I think that's the power in the book. We've talked so far about your travels to China, Japan, mm -hmm. work camp in Ghana. What advice would you give to people relative to three fuels that fueled your engines? One fuel is books and learning. Another is getting out in the field and learning things firsthand, looking at things to have an accurate portrayal of them. And then also networks, how you folks work networks. I think we have to focus it on smart and ambitious people. I'm still stunned at how many people do not want to leave their place of origin. I think I would start off by saying anybody who's at a university listening is so well prepared. Things will work out okay in your lives. So don't be too cautious. It's a time to be brave, take a risk, have trust that things will work out. Not just to say you put on a backpack and you know head out into the mountains, but do something with a sense of purpose. But you don't have to have your whole life plotted out in front of you at this point. It can be a moment to appreciate what you've done and where you've gotten, but how you use that in a brave way going ahead. W one thing Jim has talked about, the impressions that his parents have made on him. There's a line, my, <laughs> my, it's more than a line. Something my dad used to tell my sister and me constantly was, go ahead and try it. I think being open to accidental coincidental things that happen as life comes along. So now is certainly the time and it's easier to do it than later when you have more family responsibilities, both from older parents and younger kids. To not write yourself into a detailed career path at this point. It's okay to think really broadly now in a way that will just let life unfold. For our generation, we all stumbled along much more haphazardly through our 20s than I see young people doing now. We've certainly heard from them and very successful and interesting and accomplished and just happier people have lives that are built on that openness. And I love the story about your mother. My mother. The yeah. adventure doesn't end at 100, apparently. <laughs> no, we have the extreme good fortune that my mother is 100 years old. She's the only one of our parents who is left now. And in a way, she was probably the most timid growing up or the most constrained by coming from a, a conservative Catholic immigrant family from Czechoslovakia. I, I would say that since my dad passed away 15 years ago, she is the one who has really come out and blossomed in her dotage now reaching 100. 
that she's outlived everyone by this point and has these little words of wisdom to drop, which you can imagine coming from someone who's 100, you know, look on the bright side, or yes, these things in life happen, or we have to try to look forward to something every day. What she does, a version of when people say, find your passion, she's always been a piano player. So in her assisted living complex where she tools around with her walker and she's really got all her marbles. She plays the piano every single day, plays a little concert for the other residents of the complex in the living room. She was very upset about Ukraine, as is everyone, and decided what could she do at 100? So we got her sheet music for the Ukrainian national anthem. She read right through it. And every single day she plays it right after the U.S. national anthem at her little concert and she invites the residents to stand. So they're all, you know, this is a struggle when you're in your 90s. They all get up out of their wheelchairs or out of their walkers, stand for the national anthem and stay standing for the Ukrainian national anthem, which they you know recognize the music by heart. And it's a little piece of what keeps her going their way of engaging in in the modern world that's not just turning on the TV and feeling what agency they can drum up to be part of society right now. So I'm pretty proud of her. She's a great woman. (laughs) Issues that are very seldom talked about in America right now, such as honesty and reliability and integrity. My wife has a wonderful phrase that youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> and, and then my wife has another beautiful phrase, which is that one has to be tactful because there's nothing else. And it would be interesting to hear, it seems like your lives have self-actualized. You've provided a lot of contributions to society, to culture. Help us think, Jim, about the relationship between patience so that good things take time Do you think that those are some of the things that your life work is showing? The way I would put that is we've observed these things in and about the world as time has gone on. And now as we've been doing our various pursuits for many decades, raising our family, staying together as a family, seeing how the U.S. works itself and interacts with, with the rest of the world. And there are times when it's depressing to think that there are not costs for dishonesty or for being unreliable or unaccountable. The modest buffer there is that this has been a reality of American history for a very long time and of world history for a very long time. So the question is, I think, not to be too disheartened by that reality, but just to recognize that it is a long struggle of individuals and communities, and it's how people respond when in doubt, give other people the benefit of the doubt because everybody's having a hard time. That's something I think I learned from my dad and his role as small town doctor. And also from my dad, who was in college only for about a year and a half before going to medical school. When in doubt, just keep learning new things. I have a couple of things to add on to this. <laughs> this is, is the yeah. truth squad. <laughs> no, I, I really admire that Jim is always following his North Star. Even when he's doing the dishes, he has a bigger picture of life in mind. Whereas I start to get kind of tangled up in, oh my God, there's not enough time to do this. And it becomes very transactional. One thing I have learned is to try your best. There's a wonderful British new book called Crazy Old Age. 
where the woman is upset with her family asking her to change her sweater. And she talks about how my sweater has character because I've worn it for 20 years. We didn't really touch on your speech writing experience. It's interesting we're talking about tone and language and uh, your experiences, both of you in China and the different modalities of writing, very direct speech. And I'm wondering about how you prepare for writing speeches for Carter. What was that like? So this was a unexpected and strange, but very privileged role I had. So we were living in Austin, Texas, when Deb was in graduate school for linguistics. And I was working as a freelance writer for Texas Monthly Magazine. I had an oddball job in the Texas State Senate for a few months. And sort of out of the blue, some friends were working on the then nascent but growing Jimmy Carter presidential campaign in 1976. And I'd written in a previous job at the Washington Monthly Magazine about Carter as a candidate and why his kind of practical-minded politics, I thought could be refreshing for the Democratic Party. And so one of our friends said, well, looks like Carter is catching on. We need more people to be on the staff. And so on the same rolling the dice, 26 years old, Deb had just found out she was pregnant with our first son, but I said, bye, Deb, I'll see you. <laughs> I went off to join the, the campaign, traveled with Carter on the campaign plane for a couple of months, the whole campaign, and then worked for two years in the White House. What I found was a million things, the ones relevant to our conversation, since we're talking about speeches, that there's a way that anybody listening to this can determine whether or not he or she would like to be a speechwriter. And that is essentially whether it's easy to do. And what I mean is, as Deb was mentioning earlier, what I think of as real writing for a book or magazine takes many drafts and pouring over, writing speeches should be easy if you're going to do it, because essentially you just start giving the speech to yourself in your head and type it down. And it's meant to be heard. And so you just start saying it and, and type it out through your fingers. And that was something that the little group of people who was doing it on the campaign and in the White House, that we all were that kind of person. The related point is that Jimmy Carter had a very idiosyncratic, formal speaking style. All of us were very good at being able to reproduce the way he would say things extemporaneously, because that's what a speechwriter's job is, to be able essentially to not a mimic so much, but you hear what that language is and you can recreate it. When Carter was doing formal speeches, he would often, frustratingly for us, edit the version into something much more starchy than he would actually say it if he were on the stump. But that's what he wanted to do. He was the principal, so we all did that. I learned tremendous lessons about how government works by spending a couple of years in the cauldron at a young age. It gave me a lot of respect for people who are in national government because it's an enormously demanding job. People are tired all the time. And the question about a president is always in what particular area will he or she fall short? because they have to do more things than any one person is competent at. So I have a lot more respect for people in office than I did. And when I finally left, it was because I realized I took more satisfaction out of having a lot of control over something small, namely my own writing, rather than a small part of something big, namely a presidential speech. So I was glad to have done it. And I passed the baton to others. Writing a speech is easy, but that's only from someone experienced. So writing a good speech, I think, is incredibly challenging, of course. How many speeches do we really remember and which speeches resonate with you? 
there are speeches we think of in different ways. And it was the case for Bill Clinton. There were two things that he would say about the whole speech writing process. One is that memorable speeches often come out of horrible circumstances, out of wartime or out of tragedy or whatever else, or FDR trying to change the nation's mind in the beginning of the Depression when he was, was taking office. I think that, that there are there's a category of speeches that stand up both because the issues they addressed and the ways they did that. And I think that Abraham Lincoln is considered to be unique in this category. His second inaugural address is seen as the highest achievement in formal, at least American political oratory of having profound thoughts very concisely delivered. John Kennedy's addresses are often thought of as being more sort of showy you know, that has a kind of language to them that you ask not, et cetera, that is more showy. They are very accomplished, but they're sort of a thing of their own, as were Ronald Reagan's. In modern oratory, I think actually the most skillful presidential speech I have heard, and it was by Barack Obama, but not the one you would think of. It was the one he gave in tribute to the people, to the black parishioners who were murdered in Charleston, South Carolina, when he was there about a week after that. And this was the speech that ended with him singing Amazing Grace, a cappella, unexpectedly. And what was so impressive about that speech was the way that it was two things. One was the way that the concept of grace was woven like an essay, like you know, any classic essay from the Romans or from any other essays you would think of, that was woven in different ways through the speech. That was one of his achievements. The other was the way in which Obama spoke in different languages, by which I mean white American English and black American English. And he had that register shifting and codes shifting through the speech. And to wind it up with a brave performance by somebody who is not that good a singer, to start out a cappella singing Amazing Grace in the confidence that people would join in with him. I think that is the most accomplished speech I have heard myself ever. I was encouraged by reading their new book where President Obama teams with Bruce Springsteen and they do a picture book called Renegades. And I bought it out of faith that I admire both their song and their presidency. It was a good book. They have passages in there. I don't know. They have passages where they say that America is not about our skyscrapers or our wealth, but about our music and our protest. I mean, really beautiful passages, Jim, that I thought Obama was done with. And then I get this book and I'm going, neither Springsteen or Obama are done with. They're still cooking. I, I agree with what you said about Abraham Lincoln and also about President Obama. He had that gift, that very as, rare gift. As we say in the writing business, he could have been a writer. <laughs> <laughs> and I would say a beautiful singer, and it just really brings together how great speeches are really a, a kind of anthem that sings in us and, and just stays in our memory. So. 
Thank you, James and Deb Fallows, for your commitment to telling important stories, your example of civic engagement and helping us understand our towns, communities, and the world so we might have a better tomorrow. Thank you for adding your voice to business and society. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki and Mia Funk. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Sam Myers. Digital Media Coordinator was Sophie Garnier. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening.